Well, good morning, listeners. We are um, going to be journeying through a couple topics today that are uh, pretty profound, but also I want to handle with a lot of delicacy um, because there has been a lot of abuse of these two things, um, but with both of them, there's a lot of emotion and even a charged emotion that comes with these two topics, as do many other truths. But these two, I think, specifically have the notion of things that we very much so value and care about in terms of relationships. And so the first topic we're going to go over is going to be found in Luke 22:38. Now, backstory on this one. This is not one that I had on my list up until about two days ago. When I watched a video of this young man who is asking this pastor a question about whether or not we have the ability to defend ourselves from physical harm. And this pastor gave him this verse in Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, and he said, look, if you have an opportunity to not have to defend yourself physically or whatever, then great, take it. But you know what? I believe that God absolutely would want us to defend ourselves, even using bodily or physical harm unto another person in order to spare our life. And he used this verse for it. Right off the bat, I don't even know if it computed with you as I was even stating that. Right off the bat, that is the exact opposite of the cross. And I want that notion to sink in very deeply right now. Because the notion of the cross was a sinless man who chose to let people pummel him destroy his body even unto death even though he didn't deserve it even though it wasn't fair even though it was unjust he let it happen and then even as he was hanging on that jagged wood he said father forgive them for they know not what they do so right off the bat I'm going to ask you the question before I even get into the verse and explain what this verse is actually meaning in light of the New Testament and the cross Does the notion of self-defense even example the life lived of our Lord and Savior and the expression that he gave to us, the example he gave to us on the cross? And we'll talk about that as we get into 1 Peter chapter 2. But something I want you to think about that my job as a Christian is to imitate Christ. My job as a Christian to follow Jesus Christ is found in Luke 9.23 that says that if I want to come after him, then I have to deny myself and pick up my cross daily to follow him. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his name's sake saves it. You see, the very example of following Jesus cannot have a notion of self-defense. We can't even be thinking about that. And so we're going to talk about this concept of passivity, And what non-resistance is and the distinction between the two. But let me just get straight to the verse and read it. It's found in Luke 22, verse 38. He says this. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, this is a passage that, as I explained before, a lot of times people will use to say, look, Jesus is condoning the notion of self-defense. Let me back up and just read verses 35 through 38. And get a little bit of context to the passage. Here's what he says. And he said to them, 
When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its, film, has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, I'm sorry. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it's enough. The question is, is what is it? Is it just simply referencing the swords or is he referencing it back to something that he stated that those two swords were enough to fulfill something that was written and needed to happen in order for its fulfillment to take place? You see, the very beginning of this passage, he's talking about learning how to trust him even whenever the odds are stacked against you, even when it doesn't look promising, even when the odds are not in your favor. He says, I I need you to learn to trust me. It's one of the very first essential things of ministry is that you need to learn to trust God for the impossible. So he's talking about that. He says, did you lack anything? Did you learn to trust me? Yes, Lord, we learned to trust you. Okay, you learned to trust me in the physical things of life. Now you're going to need to trust me in the spiritual things. You see, oftentimes when we go and witness the gospel to people, we take care of their physical provisions that are needed in order to then proclaim a spiritual reality and truth that they need. It's actually a method that Jesus did. And it's a method that we use today in the church. We take care of physical needs to show them that we love them and build up a trust with them. And then we show them the spiritual need. Jesus is saying the exact same thing. You see, it's interesting because in Proverbs twenty-three thirty-three, let me turn to it real quick. I want you guys to see something in which Solomon is writing here to his sons and he tells them something. I find it very fascinating because we're obviously going to see a spiritual connotation to what a sword really is. Here's what he says. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. What is he saying to his son to do? Is he saying buy truth? Like how are you going to do that? He's telling him, I need you to fully invest yourself in truth. That's what you need to be sold out for. That's what you need to go towards. And I find it fascinating that this concept of a sword is brought into Ephesians 6 in which he says that there's this sword of the spirit. It's the word of truth. It's what we need to arm ourselves with. So as I see this context breaking down, it's essentially this. Jesus says, when you trusted me for your physical needs, even when you didn't go out there, you took no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, Did I provide? Yes, Lord, you did. Now trust me for the spiritual needs. You see, he's not keeping it physical. He says, now I want you to go and buy truth. I want you to invest in that and let that be what guards you and protects you and covers you. And they say, look, Lord, there's 11 of us here. Here's two swords. We can defend ourselves because they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was actually referencing. And I can almost see Jesus sheepishly saying, it's enough. Not only is it enough to fulfill the, pro- the, the passage that says that he was numbered with the transgressors. That's not saying anything about Jesus. That's saying about the people who were surrounding him. Well, we're going to read something in just a little bit that would actually undermine the claim of Jesus condoning taking the sword in just a little bit. But I want you to understand... The scripture must be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. Well, how are we going to know that they were a transgressor unless they did something that transgressed? And Jesus then became numbered with them. 
I hope that makes sense because what I'm about to read, I think, will fit in with that. Understand this. In 47 through 53, here's what he says. Same chapter. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? What sword do you think that they're referencing there? Take it back to 35 through 38. It's the very swords that they found that were there. And they said, look, Lord, here's two swords for 11 disciples. It's not very good odds, guys. And before even thinking and getting an answer from Jesus, Peter rushes to the scene, grabs the sword, and here's what he does. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's break down this scene real quick. Just prior to this, they say, Look, Lord, here's two swords. And he says, It's enough. And then Peter goes and he grabs the sword. The very sword that Jesus said, It's enough. And he strikes the servant of the high priest. He strikes his ear, cuts off his ear. And Jesus rebukes him for it. You see, that doesn't make sense. If I'm using Luke twenty-two thirty-eight 38 as, as a passage to condone self-defense, it doesn't make sense then that Jesus then rebukes Peter for doing the very thing that he gave a condoning for in Luke twenty-two thirty-eight. It doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus rebuke Peter for that? It's because Peter had to be the instrument used to fulfill Scripture. So that Jesus could be numbered with the transgressors. And the sword was enough for that to take place. But it was not the intent that Jesus was meaning that we have the right to defend ourselves. Or others with physical harm. I want you to listen very closely to me. If there was somebody that would in any way, shape, or form be justifiable to defend, wouldn't Jesus be the one? And yet Peter did that, and he got rebuked for it. Let me put it to you in a different way. If there is anyone that should have been defended, Jesus would be the one. And yet God looked the other way. In fact, it even says it pleased him to have his son hang on the cross. But it was to fulfill a higher purpose than himself. And you and I have a higher purpose that we live for. You and I have a different agenda in this life. You and I are on a different mission than the preservation of our lives or even the lives of others. We talk about all the time that we need to protect our family. And I'm absolutely on board with that. But not in a physical sense. My job is to represent the Almighty in the image of Jesus Christ. And to portray the gospel, which by the way, here's the gospel. That though I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And he did it for you. He allowed his body to be broken, to be bruised, and to be bloodied on behalf of sinners. Of such are you and I. 
So how in the world can we uphold a gospel that is predicated on Jesus on the cross, dying for sinners such as you and I, but we're going to make sure that people get what they deserve. I'm going to go seek to preserve my own life when even my own Savior didn't do it on the cross. I'm going to seek to go preserve somebody else's life by taking their life to preserve somebody that I am deeming more valuable when God Himself didn't do it for His own Son. How shameful it is that we have become so culturalized that even though we might have good intent, that intent is opposite of the very message that we proclaim. So look at what he says in, again in 38. It was to fulfill the word. Isaiah 53, 12. You can go read that one. Verse 49. The sword that's being referenced goes back to verse 36. Verse 51. Don't you think it's a strange reply for the obedience, the quote unquote, the obedience that Peter was doing? Look at Matthew 26, 52. And here's what he says. Uh, once I get to, I'm trying to use my phone so that you guys don't have to hear all the pages flipping of me getting to it. 52, same exact story. I'm going to back it up into verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do, referencing Judas. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, meaning Malchus, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, listen to what he says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Isn't that a pretty fascinating response? He says, all who take the sword, the word that's used there in the Greek is a word that can mean a physical sword or a proverbial sense of justice. All who are going to live by a sense of justice are absent of the gospel of Jesus Christ within that. And you will be judged by that same thing. Don't think that you can say, I've come into Christ and I've been forgiven, but then you go out and exact justice on other people, even using physical force to take people's lives to preserve your own, and then think that He's going to hold you guiltless. It doesn't work that way. All who take the sword will perish by that sword. Remember what He talks about? He says that you'll be forgiven as you forgive others. It's the exact same thing. If you want to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you need to go and give the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. It does not work to receive the gospel, but then to withhold it from others. You don't receive grace to withhold grace. You don't receive mercy to withhold mercy. You don't receive forgiveness to withhold forgiveness. You receive those things so that you can give those things. You don't receive love. From God the Father that was poured out through His own Son on that cross. Given to us so that we might have access unto His presence. So that you can then withhold that gospel cross-centered love from others. We've received so that we can give. This is the blueprint of heaven. You know, this is actually one of the only passages in all of, and I won't even say the New Testament because the Gospels aren't technically New Testament. Hebrews 9 talks about it where it says that the the covenant cannot be established until a death occurs that redeems. And that's going to come into play in our next passage. Or our next topic. But he says, you, 
the new covenant didn't even start until after the death of Jesus. So technically, this is still all old covenant, but Jesus is trying to point us to something that would be. This is one of the only scriptures in all of, and I'll just say the New Testament, that could even hint at self-defense being meritable. Everything else in the new covenant that we have through the epistles and the examples of the apostles and the examples of Christ himself, everything that we have would point to the notion of a self-defensive mentality, whether that's you defending yourself from physical harm and using physical harm to do so, or even defending another. Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves. That word for avenge means to defend yourself or others from physical harm by using physical harm. And again, I'll just ask you the question. Is the notion of self-defense, of using physical harm to protect yourself in line with the cross of Jesus Christ? And if you can in good conscience and somehow use the word of God to prove that, then by all means, use the sword. I'm not talking about Old Testament. Please do not even bring up the Old Testament in this. Because if that's your angle, if that's what you're bringing up in this, then you don't understand the cross. Because the cross was the beginning. It was not the middle. It was not something that bridged the two together. It was something that fulfilled the old to bring about a new. This is why Jesus is the firstborn. 1 Peter chapter 2, 19-24. I'll wrap it up with this. Here's what he says. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I want you to pay very close attention to this. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Pay very close attention, please. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, that's the gospel. It was by his wounds that we were healed. It was by Him hanging on that cross, taking the beating that you and I deserved so that we could find healing and life and redemption that we could have a chance. Christians, whenever we have an opportunity to represent the cross, I pray that we would have the boldness and the courage and the faith to trust Him that we would cloak ourselves with the spiritual sword of truth 
and not seek to use the physical means absent of it. So I pray that this would encourage you, but more so that it would exhort you unto a a life that is lived, that is worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. Because Jesus set us an example. And it's an example to what we have been called. So our next one, I would say, is just as weighty, just as heavy, if not even more so. And these are the two that God led me to do today. And this is one that I want to treat with a lot of delicacy because there's a lot of layers to unfold in this one. There's a lot of things that, that are affected by an incorrect view. And there's a lot of people that have been led astray. And it's not necessarily their fault, though I want to be careful with that because the scriptures are clear in my estimation of this. But a lot of people are led, excuse me, are led astray. Because some pastor told them that this was okay. Or somebody informed them that, hey, here's this scripture which gives you justifiable means for it. So it's okay. And then people go down that path and they they don't realize that they're disobedient to God. Because some pastor or mentor or teacher or whoever told them that was okay because they didn't understand the text. And I'm hoping to reconcile some of these passages today to get you to understand what God's intent for marriage, divorce, and remarriage has always been from the beginning. And I'm not talking about from the law. I'm talking about from the beginning when he instituted the concept of marriage. So we're going to look at Matthew 5, 31-32. A very famous passage that is used oftentimes to bring a justifiable excuse for divorce. Here's what it says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, let's break this one down. Because again, this is a very delicate issue because there's a lot of people who find themselves in the boat of being married or being divorced or being remarried. Or being married to somebody who was divorced, even if they themselves had not been married previously. Then you also bring to the equation children from previous marriages and children in second marriages and possibly children from third marriages. You see, the, 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 the tentacles of this stretch very far. And that's why I want to handle it delicately, but I want to handle it in truth. What is this passage stated? Well, in order to understand this passage, you have to understand kind of the theme of Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is all about Jesus clarifying what was written under the law of Moses in order to give a proper understanding because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had distorted it. And so he says, what does he say at the very beginning? It was also said. So you've heard it said. This is what the teaching is. But I'm going to tell you something deeper than just that. I'm clarifying what was written in the law. He's not establishing new covenant theology, guys. All of Matthew 5 is him essentially building this case around this one premise. If you want to get into the kingdom of God apart from me, then you're going to have to keep the law perfectly. And I'm not talking about what you've been told it's been said. I'm talking about what the intent was of it. 
If you want to get in, that's why he says at the very end of this passage in Matthew chapter 5, the very last verse in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That makes no sense. If I'm to say Jesus is establishing new covenant theology because the problem is, is none of us can be perfect apart from Jesus Christ. None of us can. The premise that he's stating is, if you want to get in apart from me, God's about to atone the blood sacrifices and fulfill the requirements of the law of the blood sacrifices so he'll no longer look at blood of bulls and goats any longer, as Hebrews 10 says. There's only one blood he's going to look at. So here's the problem. If you don't want to come in through me, then you don't have an atonement of sacrifice for your sins. So therefore, you're going to have to be perfect. And here's the perfect standard of what the law of Torah was about. Jesus says, you've heard it, the Pharisees teaching this, but that's not what it is. So understanding that is key to understanding what Jesus is teaching. He is not teaching new covenant doctrine. He is clarifying old covenant misconceptions. Please hear me on that. He is not... He is not declaring new covenant doctrine. He is clarifying old covenant misconceptions. So where is he getting these from? Deuteronomy 22, 13-22. Let me turn to that real quick. and we're gonna, I'm not going to necessarily read the entire thing, but I want you to kind of understand a little bit of what's being brought up. These are really the only two, mainly the only two passages that are referenced in terms of divorce and remarriage and whatnot. These are the main two that are used here. In Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 22, it talks about this. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her the evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman or mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elder of the city and the gate. So essentially it's this. A man gets married under the precept that or the pretense that she was a virgin. Well, whenever they actually go in to consummate their union, uh, there's no blood on the sheets. And so he says... I'm accusing her of not being a virgin of Israel. And so we're going to take the evidence before the elders. And whether those sheets had blood or whether they didn't, then the elders would make the judgment that if there was no blood and she said she was a virgin, but she wasn't, but had premarital sexual immorality, then it says that she is to die. Because she's brought a bad name on the house of Israel. If the husband is lying about it and there is evidence of it, then I believe it says that he was to be fined and that he may not divorce her all the days of his life. But what's the, what's the premise of this entire thing? It's that she had premarital, not postmarital, but premarital infidelity. And that she was not a virgin, but claimed that she was. Now, is Matthew 5, 31 through 32 referencing that one? Or is it referencing the one in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4? Well, let's look at what Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies... 
who took her to be his wife, that her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Could it be that one? I don't know. What I do know is this, that Moses allowed a certain degree of leniency when it came to marriage, but it's one that God did not allow in the beginning. You notice the phrase certificate of divorce. Well, we're going to read something in Mark chapter 10, 1 through 9 that I think clarifies some of this one. And something I want to also talk, talk about is Matthew is the only book that even talks about this concept of sexual morality and divorce and remarriage or whatnot. Why do you think that is? Mark doesn't reference it in Mark chapter 10. Luke 16, 18 doesn't reference it. In fact, it actually, it talks about it, but it, does, it completely leaves out the concept of sexual morality and John never even addresses it. You ever wonder why? Well, if you're somewhat of a scholar, you would know that the book of Matthew was written primarily to Jews from a Jewish perspective for Jewish type understanding. People who would have understood the law. Matthew wrote the gospel, uh, his gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews. So he came from a Jewish perspective. Luke was writing from a Paulinian perspective. It was not written to Jews. It was actually written to Theophilus, a Gentile. So he's coming from a post-New Covenant perspective because he was trained under the hand of Paul. And that will make sense in a second when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what Mark chapter 10 says. Teachings about divorce is the subtitle. It says this. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and ordered to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What law do you think they're referencing here? That would be the law of Torah, the law of Moses. Is it under the law, is it lawful for us to divorce? And Jesus says, he says this, he answered them, what did Moses command you? Notice he doesn't say God. He says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said this, and pay very close attention to this. Jesus asked him, what did Moses tell you? He says, Moses, let us write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That is in the law. Deuteronomy 22 and Deuteronomy 24. That's right there. Probably leaning more towards Deuteronomy 24. But here's Jesus' response. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Let me say that one again. Because of your hardness of heart... He wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I don't care if his name is Moses or not. You see, the law was given and added because of transgression, as what um, I think it's either Romans or Galatians says. And Jesus says that this specific law about divorce was added because of your hardness of heart. But in the beginning, when God instituted the covenant of marriage, it was not his intent. It was not what he designed it to be. It did not have an approval for divorce or remarriage. 
when he designed it. Because what God joins together, no man will separate. That was his intent. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. He doesn't give a qualification. He doesn't say there's a justification for it. He simply says what God intended in the beginning to be done. May it be done now that my blood will be shed and a new covenant will be started that bypasses the old covenant that was made 430 years later. You can go read in Galatians 3 and you're going to find it. It wasn't about Isaac. It was about Christ. Christ is the offspring. And when his covenant starts, it supersedes the old covenant of Torah and brings it back to what it was in the beginning. So if you're using Matthew 5, 31 through 32, shame on you for using that as a justification for divorce or for remarriage. I've talked to many people on this regard. And again, I want to handle it delicately, but I want to handle it in truth. I've talked to many people who believe in this notion of once saved, always saved. I call it OSAS. This notion in which once I come into to Christ, nothing that I do will separate me from Him. And we hold to this, and we believe in this, and we teach it from the pulpit, and we say, it doesn't matter. We'll even use James 4 and say, you adulterous people, but you know what? He gives more grace. And we'll say, that's how God is towards us, that no matter what we do, no matter how far we run, no matter how bad we sin against Him, even if we commit spiritual adultery against Him, He is always in covenant with Him because nothing separates us from that covenant. But you know what? Whenever a woman comes into my um, counsel and her husband's been unfaithful, I say, well, you know what? I think God would want you to stay together, but you're justified in a divorce. Wait, what? What? Can we have some consistency in what we teach? You can't say that you receive from God His unfailing, unconditional faithfulness unto us. And even when we're unfaithful to Him, He remains faithful to us. But then say that a woman who has an unfaithful husband can actually then separate in covenant from Him. Let's have some consistency in what we're going to teach across the board. Because if you're going to believe in OSAS, then you cannot believe divorce is justifiable. You can't. Because the marriage covenant is actually parallel to the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 5 makes very clear. Luke 16, 18. This is one, again, that I talked about. Luke, Luke is writing this for Theophilus. He's been trained in the hand of Paul, which is why I believe he doesn't include a clarification of the Old Testament but an establishment of the new. Here's what he says. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Nothing about sexual morality. No justifiable excuse. He just simply states it what it is under the terms of the new covenant. And where do we get those terms? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Romans chapter 7. And we're going to turn there right now. Now some of you might be in the position right now of saying, but wait a second. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. Um, and, man, I, I can't discount it. I can't disagree with that. But what does that mean? I've been divorced and now I'm remarried. And there are so many layers to unpack in that. Did you intentionally do it knowing that it was sin? Or were you led astray by somebody who told you that was justifiable? Or because somebody, when you were a kid, this is what they used to teach. And so you just always grew up thinking that this was the case. Were you saved? Were you not saved? 
You see, there's a big difference between somebody intentionally doing something against the faith that they know they shouldn't be doing, and they go ahead and do it anyways, and then they get remarried, and now this whole big ball of wax is now opened up, Pandora's box is there, and now you've got to deal with it, as opposed to somebody who didn't know. And they were led astray. Maybe they weren't even saved. You see, there's all kinds of things that have to be counseled through and walked through individually with each specific situation. My job is to not simply go through all the parameters of every situation that could ever be unfolded. My job is to simply preach to you the standard. That's that's my job. To to not necessarily write the mail, but to deliver it. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7, which by the way, this isn't past tense. This is present tense that Paul is using here. He says this, Or do you not know brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. He says, I'm telling you, I'm speaking to brothers. Christians who are in this new covenant. I'm speaking to those who know the law of Moses. They have some degree of knowledge of what the law of Moses teaches in terms of divorce and remarriage. Here's what he says. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Notice, you, you're not going to find this in the Old Testament. Because Moses allowed the certificate of divorce to be written. What's Paul referencing? New covenant doctrine. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. He's using the concept of the old covenant law being binding on a person. Just continue to read forward through the rest of the chapter, if you will. The old covenant law being binding on a person only as long as one of those parties remains alive. But if there's a death that occurs that redeems you from that covenant... You're free to belong to another. This is what he goes on to say right after it. That we were bound to the law of Moses. Even as Gentiles. We were bound under that covenant. And we would be judged under that law. Unless a death occurs that redeems us from it. So that then we may belong to another. You see the principle that's being stated here is one of. An atoning death that can redeem. And the only way that a covenant that God establishes can be annulled is through death. This is why through Moses it could be annulled in other ways, but it was because of the hardness of heart. But in the beginning when God instituted the concept of marriage, it always had the premise of death having to annul it. And that's going to make more sense as I get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here's where he says. I'm just going to start right in verse 38, I believe is where it is. No, 39. And you're going to find the exact same terminology. Paul referencing present tense now to Gentiles. He's not referencing people who have a knowledge of the law. He's referencing this to Gentiles. And he says this. Listen very carefully. A wife is bound. Same Greek word, deo. Is the word that's used there. It means of law. To be knit and tied in chains. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, 
She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. I don't know if it gets much plainer than that. But somehow we miss it. Somehow we seek to justify by using either Old Testament passages or miscontextualized passages in the gospel accounts that hasn't even begun the new covenant theology. And we sidestep verses like this or verses like in Romans 7 or verses like I'm about to read in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm not asking for fairness in marriages. And I don't think God is either. Here's what I mean by that. What we just talked about in a previous one, it says that this is a gracious thing when mindful of God wanted to do her sorrows while suffering unjustly. You might be in a situation as a wife or as a husband where maybe your partner is not upholding their end of the partnership. And I get the attempt to want to flee that, but it's not what we've been called to. And I'll explain that in a second when I get into 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So Paul's saying, look, I know that I have the Spirit and I could give this charge and have the authority of heaven in order to do it. But guys, it's not even me who's giving this charge. This is God. This is God's charge under the terms of the new covenant because of the blood of Christ of what he has done on our behalf. This is God's charge not mine, bringing things back to the beginning to work. What God joins together, let no man or woman separate. Here it is. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, if she chooses to ignore that charge, if she chooses to just go ahead and do it on her own accord and just say, you know what, forget that. This is too hard. I'm going to separate. I'm going to do this. He says this commandment. She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That is your only option. You see, the problem is today we've given people many options. And we try to justify divorce. And then after that divorce, then we justify them remarrying who they want to. But Paul says God has given this charge. A wife should not separate from her husband. But if she chooses to ignore that charge and she just goes on ahead and she does it anyways. And he says, here's your only option. You either do this, in which you remain in that position, or you be reconciled to your husband. There is no other man you are allowed to bring back into the equation. And he says, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's a charge from God. No sexual morality involved. In fact, I'm going to bring that up in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through, 1 through 3. No sexual immorality involved. No, well, it's just unfair. It's just unjust. I'm just, you don't understand my situation. I don't need to understand your situation to uphold truth. And you might think that that's shallow. You might think that that's just cold hearted. It's not cold hearted. It's life and life abundantly. I want people to experience the life of Christ in which if you choose to walk in darkness, which is apart from the truth of God's word, then you cannot have fellowship with him. You cannot have fellowship with me and his blood can't cleanse you from that. Go read Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a, uh, a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or those who would oppose truth you see it might sound like that's cold hearted it's not cold hearted I want you to experience the life of Christ but the only way to do that is to walk in his truth and this is his truth guys 
You can slice it and dice it. We can rearrange it. We can distort it. We can pervert it all we want to. But the reality is you're still going to come back to the same account that one day you're going to give an account to God. And he's going to say, you had my word. And it was plain. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. You don't have the freedom to separate. You don't have the freedom to divorce. Because that's not what I instituted in the beginning. This is why I tell my kids, you better make sure that when you decide to go down that path of marriage, you better make sure, one, that it pleases the Lord. Two, that you know that person. Because once you get into that covenant, you're in it. And it's a covenant till death does you part. I mean, let alone, the word of God is pretty clear on this matter. But how many times do we have people who give their vows to the other person that in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, richer or for poorer, until death does us part? How many times do we say those vows, but then as soon as our spouse doesn't uphold their end of it, it's like, wait a second, nope, 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 now, now I'm done. I thought we said until death does you part. That's your vow to them, regardless of better or worse. Would, would marital unfaithfulness be better or worse? Yeah, it is. And it's covered under the marriage vows. Now, some people would look at verse 15 and they would say, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, some people would say that Paul is meriting divorce right there. I disagree. And here's why. The word that's used there is not deo. In such cases, the, the uh, what does he say? The brother or sister is not bound. Some translations might say bound, but the Greek word that's used there is dulu. And it's not a word that means of an obligatory binding by law. It's one of spousal duties. It's one in which there's duties within the marriage that you have to perform. Whether it be conjugal rights, whether it be the submission under the husband, whether it be, you know, whatever it might be, there's spousal duties within that. It says you're no longer bound to have to perform those spousal duties. However, that does not negate what Paul says in verse 39. That you are bound still in covenant because a death has not occurred that redeems you from it. You cannot belong to another one until a death occurs. Nothing's changed on that end. All Paul is simply stating is, is that you don't have to uphold your spousal duties because that partner has left their post. So when it comes down to leading, say, say you have children. When it comes down to how you're going to lead your children, you don't have to go through the, through the hierarchy of the man to be able to say, hey, are you okay with this? He left his post. But you're still in covenant with him. Because a death has not occurred that redeems you from it. In the same way, we were under covenant. In the old covenant, we were destined to die until a death occurred that redeemed us from the transgressions committed on the first so that we might belong to another. This is the only option, guys. And you might say again, well, I would still say that marital unfaithfulness or if my husband's not doing his part, that I, I, I feel like I'm free to be able to marry. Well, I'd encourage you to go back and read 1 Peter 2 again. But let me read this one. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Right after he talks about the example of Christ and how he was treated unjustly and he was treated unfairly, but he still was abiding in the will of God. For what God had for him. And trusting himself to him and judges justly. He didn't abandon the situation. He didn't look at those guys. And you know what? Fine guys. 
Fine. You're treating me unfairly. I've had enough. It's been three years of this mess. I'm done with you. No, he said, Father, forgive them. That was his mentality the entire time. Here's what he says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Right after chapter 2, here's the word he says, likewise. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says, you know what? Even if your husband is having an affair, that doesn't mean that there's not steps that need to be taken. That it doesn't need to be exposed. It doesn't need to be handled. What it doesn't mean is that you have legal rights to divorce him. He says, even if your husband's not obedient to the word, what's your job, wife? To still respect him. To still subject yourself to him. So that maybe... As the same example of Christ unto us won us over, maybe your example of Christ to him would win him over. Not retaliating, not fleeing, because Christ didn't flee the cross. He stayed on it. He stayed on it till the end. He stayed on it until death. And my urge to you, husband, to you, wife, you might be in an unfathomable Situation with your spouse. And it might be something that it, it takes everything out of you every single day to try to be Christ to them. And my encouragement is, is that Christ is enough. You're not, but He is. Everything that you need to be who God has called you to be within the confines of that marriage, He has given to you through Christ. And He is enough. Be his example. Remain on that cross until the end. Because the reality is, guys, where are you going to go? You might escape the situation of an unhealthy marriage, but that doesn't escape you being in an unhealthy relationship with Jesus Christ. You might find yourself in a position, like I said before, that maybe you are divorced and remarried. I would say, seek the Lord. If it's something that you didn't realize, somebody led you astray, maybe it's something you just always thought because somebody led you astray when you were a kid and you just grew up with this thought process, or maybe you just intentionally sinned against him, and I would say you need to seek his face. Ask for forgiveness if that's needed. But as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, to whatever position one was called, let him remain there. I don't believe that God is saying, look, like you got divorced, you had kids in a previous marriage, and then you got remarried, now you have kids with that person. And I don't believe God is saying, okay, now you need to separate from that one, now you need to go back to your original spouse. I think God's saying, through His Word in 1 Corinthians 7, in the hand of Paul, He says, look, if at the time of your calling, at the time of your understanding that, what did I do? I messed up. I shouldn't have done this. But now you're already remarried with kids. And you need to remain in that calling. You need to try to reconcile with your spouse of saying, I'm sorry for what I did. You need to make amends. But remain in the position that you're in. There's all kinds of layers to unfold of this. Were you saved? Were you not saved? Were you walking with Jesus? Were you not walking with Jesus? There's all kinds of things to have to unfold in this. But the, the, the main thing I'm trying to emphasize to every single one of us And don't think that 
a lot of people look at my marriage with Jen and they see, man, you guys have 11 kids. You have a ministry together. You guys, you know, everything's perfect in your marriage. You guys have the perfect marriage. Let me just tell you, our first year of marriage, divorce even came up. It was not a healthy marriage. It was not a God-honoring marriage. But through the power of Christ, our marriage has become what it is today. And it doesn't mean it's without its flaws. What it means is, is that we are two people who know that we're in this race together until the end. So we make it work. And I would encourage you, you might be with somebody who is very difficult to be with. Let me just ask you, how difficult are you to deal with from God? Are you always easy peasy? Are you always just an, an easy go with God of being like, man, I just never have to worry about that guy. I never have to worry about that girl. And they're always doing the things that are right. How are we ever going to learn how to show the love of God to a spouse if they're always deserving of it? How are we going to have to learn how to dig down deep and rely on Christ? To be able to love our spouse, to be able to submit to them as a wife under her husband, to be able to lead as a husband does or should. How are we ever going to learn to do those things and to rely on the strength of Christ to do it if it's an easy road to always have to do it? The point is, is we've got two people who have been united and yoked together. You're not always going to have it easy. But man, it makes a huge difference to know that you got nowhere else to go because you're in this until death does you part. you got to make it work. And when you understand that, that's when you go to God and you say, God, I need you to help me in this. As soon as you start giving yourself an out, though, you'll stop going to God. And you'll start going to men who are going to teach you and tell you what you want to hear. So here's the deal, guys. Here's the reality. You're in a covenant. You're in a God-binding covenant. And there's only one thing that separates that covenant. It's death. That's the marriage covenant. It's the same covenant in a way that a physical death can separate a physical covenant. Only a spiritual death can separate a spiritual covenant. That's another topic for another time. But here's what I'll say. You might not agree with me on every level, but here's what I'll say. And I've even had people who stood across from couches from me, across from tables from me. And here's what they all have said to me in times of even when they disagree with me. They'll say, at least you're consistent. Here's what I'll say to you. Is your doctrine consistent? Are you one of the, the many masses who believe and once saved, always saved, but you also give a, a condoning for divorce. Because here's the reality, that's not consistency. So I am encouraging all of us to take an honest look at the scriptures. But even more so, to take an honest look at the cross. And to see the example that God gave to us in His Son. And then be that example to others. Y'all be blessed.